Hello and welcome to Silux, the podcast where we talk about scientific developments and technological changes in Luxembourg. And in today's show, we sat down with Antonino Salmeri from the University of Luxembourg. He told us about his passion and his work, space law, and all the other implications as well, other interests of his regarding that field. I hope you enjoy the interview. Our guest today is Antonino Salmeri, a doctoral researcher in space law at the University of Luxembourg. Welcome, Antonino. Thank you very much, Hannah. It's a pleasure to be here. Our pleasure as well. I was just thinking that this is the discussion uh, about law, so we have to start with definitions. As a <laughs> good lawyer, we have to define a few things before we discuss them, and I think that's, that will make our lives easier. So let's start with space law as such and international space law. How do you see it? What does it really involve? What do you look at when you talk mm -hmm. about international space law? Of course, and, and it's, a, it's always a good practice to start with some definitions and let's say set up the scene and the framework for our discussion. So first of all, I would like to start by saying that space law is real indeed, because many people, when I say that I'm a space lawyer, <laughs> even doubt that it is actually a field of law. It is. It is part of international law, as you already said. And it is that branch of international law that deals with the regulation of activities in outer space and on celestial bodies. The essence of international space law can be found in a treaty, which is called the Outer Space Treaty. The simple, uh, actually, title is the Outer Space Treaty. The longer one is the treaty on activities uh, happening on uh, celestial bodies and outer space. So, But you can check it out. You can find it online. And what the Outer Space Treaty tells you is that When humanity started exploring outer space in the 50s, there was a desire to set up an international set of rules to make sure that space uh, activities would happen in a peaceful and cooperative manner. So at the time, in 1958, they created an international committee within the United Nations, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, with the purpose of creating the first rules. And, you know, sometimes we, we tend to have a misperception of how those years were, because we were in the Cold War, And the rhetoric that was, you know, later on passed was of a space race. And to a certain extent, it certainly was in a, in a, in a political way, in, in a practical way, maybe it was a race. But I can tell you that legally speaking, it was not as such. Um, the idea was instead to come up with common rules so that space would not become a place for conflict as Earth has been so far. And so the choices that were made during those days, during the The, say the year between 1958 and 1967, which was when the Outer Space Treaty was signed and then ratified, they, they were critical and they still play a fundamental role up to this day. So it was because of their attitude, the attitude towards international cooperation and peaceful exploration of space, that we're still able to use space in a prosperous way as we do, as we do today. Now, as to the actual rules that you find in international space law, The Outer Space Treaty provides you with some fundamental principles. For instance, the principle that uh, space is free for exploration and use by all states, and the principle also that all space activities have to be conducted for the benefit and in the interest of all countries. Another important principle is that uh, space is subtracted, so it's not subject to national appropriation by states. This is a cardinal rule of space law in the sense that it preserves really the international dimension of, of space, which in law we define as a global common, which is an area that is not under the exclusive influence of any state, 
but it is indeed shared among all of them, like, for instance, the high seas. Those are the fundamental principles that were created in the 60s. Then, uh, building upon those principles, we have other international treaties, and then we also have national legislation. Some countries, like Luxembourg, uh, decide to regulate space activities at the national level in order to allow for their own citizens and companies to engage in space activities. Because a fundamental principle of space law is that, in principle, only states are free to engage in in the exploration and use of outer space. If a private entity wants to engage in space activities, it needs the authorization and supervision of a state. And that is usually given by means of national legislation, because a state assumes international responsibility for whatever national entity does in outer space, and a state is responsible to ensure that all activities are done in compliance with international space law. So that's why you find then more specific rules as to how do you get a license to do satellite communication activities? Uh, how do you get a permit to do space mining? And those you will find the most most um, probably in national space legislation. So it's a, it's a whole corpus of law. It's a system. It's not just one treaty or, or, or a couple of principles. It's something that is much more complex than that, that has evolved over the last 60 years and will continue to do so as we have more and more private activities in space and as our capabilities to expand and venture into space uh, will improve uh, over the next uh, decades or so. So the, uh, can I call it OST? Do you use it like uh, in jargon yes. OST? Okay. Yes. So the yes, OST set up the rules, but that was quite a long time ago. So uh, yeah. doesn't it need an update, like a proper update? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question and one that we frequently get. Um, so you have to imagine that the Outer Space Treaty was concluded by very smart people. It was not just any common lawyer. The people who drafted the Outer Space Treaty, they understood that space was essentially unknown to them. They didn't know what you could do with space. And so they were very well aware of the importance of designing certain rules that would be flexible enough to be valid in time. You know, when you conclude an international treaty, usually there is no expiration date. The treaty is valid until you recede from it or you conclude another one to supersede it. With the Outer Space Treaty, uh, the idea was to create something that could last for centuries. And I think that they succeeded in this goal. And not by chance, the treaty is actually called Treaty on Principles, governing the exploration and use of other space, including the moon and other celestial bodies. The fact that they focus on principles allow the Outer Space Treaty to stay valid. Because a specific rule may become outdated, but the principle is usually valid for a long, long time. So the principle that space is free for the exploration and use of other space or by all states will not change. I mean, should not change, at least. This is one foundational rule that we don't want to change. We don't need to update. It's there, and we base the other rules on that principle. And the same goes with the, national, the prohibition of national appropriation. We don't want to change that. We don't need to change that. We want it to stay like that. Every rule you find in the Aerospace Treaty is like this. We could go article by article, but of course, we don't want to bore uh, any listener to death, even though I can tell you that the Aerospace Treaty is written in a clear language, and it's very short. It's, it's only 12 articles, I think, and you can find it on Google, and you can read it yourself, and the very fundamental level is understandable by everyone. You don't even need to have a law degree. Okay, so that's something to explore. I will share a link in the show notes for those who want to check that out. 
But then, uh, does it mean this? This is something very interesting to me. So, of course, I've discussed the Cold War from the political perspective, and you said, oh, "Okay, it was there. Yes, that's how it seemed to be." But at the same time, there were a lot of intelligent people developing this, and all the countries were following. So we can say that there is no country that hasn't signed the treaty and is trying to do some something shady behind the scenes. None of them. There is no country, no single example over the last sixty years. There is only one instance in which a group of countries tried to, let's say, counteract the Outer Space Treaty, and that happened with a document called the Bogota Declaration. Uh, certain uh, developing countries at the level of the equator, uh, they really didn't like the fact that the geostationary orbit uh, above the equator was shared, in fact, by all states, and they claim it to be their own exclusive property in violation of the national appropriation principle. And that was done in a very open way. They, they thought they were in accordance with international law, but it was easily demonstrated that the Outer Space Treaty was customary law, was binding upon any state. It doesn't matter actually if you sign it or not, because those rules are valid for the entire international community and no one can escape from them. Even if, even if you don't sign the treaty, it doesn't really matter because the rules that we have there are so fundamental that it is not a question of if you want to implement it, but how do you implement them? And if you don't, then the other states will make sure that you comply. And this happened with the Bogota Declaration, which in fact didn't lead to any appropriation of the geostationary orbit. And it happens with any country. I, I can tell you that North Korea, uh, you know, is a signatory to the Outer Space Treaty. And they want to become a member of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space. And, you know, you can imagine that if a country like North Korea uh, has this mindset, everyone really has it. Because it's no point escaping from the Outer Space Treaty or from the rule of law. It's much better to see how you can implement it uh, in a way that does not really create you any any trouble more than you have already, at least. That sounds very idealistic. At least one, uh, you know, field where we are cooperating, at least we hope, because it's still, you know, we'll see what happens, right? Yeah. This yeah. is still theory in some way or another. Okay, one question first uh, on, the, on the countries. Theoretically, obviously, what happens if a country violates the treaty? That's an excellent question. And I can tell you also this, uh, I mean, the description that I've given you so far, uh, it could be called idealistic, but it's also what has happened in practice. At the same time, it's not that space is not used for other purposes than peaceful exploration, because there are rules actually in the treaty that allow countries with a certain margin of flexibility to conduct their military activities in space. So over the last 50 years, space has been critical for the development and conduct of military operation. Now, you imagine uh, that there are missiles guided by satellite uh, data, and there are uh, ground operations which would not be possible without the use of Earth observation images, and, and so on and so on. You can go with many examples. At the same time, space has never become the theater of conflict directly. No state has developed a space laser to shoot on the others. Uh, there, there is a clear prohibition on the stationing of nuclear weapons in space, right? That was actually one of the most important things to clarify at the time, you know, when nuclear was a big deal. And nobody wanted a nuclear weapon in space, you know, just threatening the, the, the surveillance of, of, of our species at all. So in this sense, you know, there has been certain behaviors that we could consider uh, a little bit uh, not as ideal as the others. And as the, at the same time, there also have been situations in which you could say that a country violated the treaty, but it's more of a matter of interpretation. I'll give you one example. Um, part of the military activities that states conduct in outer space is so-called anti-satellite tests. Um, and this ASAP, uh, as we call them, are essentially a demonstration of power, uh, the, the demonstration of the ability that if you want, you can destroy a satellite. 
And countries usually do this, do this with their own satellites, right? They, they never attack another country's satellite because that would be clearly a violation of international law. But they do it with their own because it's their own satellite and they, they have the freedom in principle to get rid of them. The problem is that by doing so, countries began to create a lot of debris. And today, the intentional creation of debris to show a demonstration of military power is considered to be potentially in violation of the Outer Space Treaty because it does not show due regard to the interests of the other states. It is not very environmentally friendly. It creates a lot of troubles. Also to the life of astronauts, which on the International Space Station and now also on the Chinese Space Station are, uh, let's say, exposed to the risk that certain debris that go out of control could uh, could even you know wipe out their lives if, if there is a collision with the station. So this is the, the majority of the states believing that. But there are countries like Russia, for instance, that believe that this is not a violation of the Aerospace Treaty, that they have the right to conduct certain type of military operation, and that when they do it, they do it in a, in a perfectly legal way. So there are certain, let's say, um, more like the question of interpretation, but there has never been an open violation of the treaty so far, uh, if you wish. But there, there will be a potential in the future for many more of these misunderstandings, which is why, even though we do not need to update the Outer Space Treaty in the sense that we do, not, we do not need a new treaty, we need to find a way to implement those rules in a more practical way, in a way that is more suitable to our times. And that's what we're doing right now in international space law. We're working on the development of intermediate rules that will serve to interpret in a consistent manner and then implement the principles of the Outer Space Treaty. So I know you also represent a kind of younger generation approach to, to that and, and whatever. So we're going to discuss that in a second. So let's talk about solutions as well. And mm-hmm. waste management, it's good you mentioned that because I think that's also something that definitely needs to be discussed. But before we go on, I would like you to ask uh, the pop quiz style question that we always have in our podcast. So I know you prepared something also related to space law, of course. So what is the question? Yes, and, and I hope uh, you know. I am really curious to see what's going to be the, the answers from uh, from your listeners. And the question is, uh, what do you think is, or actually has been, if you wish, the most debated issue in the history of space law? Something that really broke our minds that maybe we haven't solved until this day. What do you think it could be among the so many legal issues that we have in international space law? Thank you very much. As usual, we're going to reveal the answer to this question at the very end of the podcast. And then I'm sure I'm going to have a Twitter discussion, hopefully, about different other issues and involve some of our listeners in that. Okay, coming back to the um, to our discussion. So, uh, first of all, we've discussed the, the country's situation, whatever you said, that the national law is more than... Um, creating certain uh, certain rules for commercial use of space as such. So, of course, I need to touch upon that. I also touched upon this when I discussed a bit of uh, space issues with, with Dr. Jan Thurmel in our previous episode, one of the previous episodes. So what happens now? We have too many companies interested in, in all the things. I know you've also written an article about uh, one of them and Mars and what, what they've declared, right? So what can they actually do? What, what, what's the situation there? Like they have, to, they have to also obey, right? I mean, these are international rules. As you said, it's the country that gives them the right. So the country has to check that they are following. 
Yes. So your answer is already the one that I would give. They have to obey. They, there is no uh, way they can escape the rule of law in, in doing space activities. The problem is that we live in a world where corporations have learned that they can get away with a lot of things. And because they are much more powerful than states to a, to a lot of extents, uh, they think that they could do whatever they want. They think that they don't need states and that they are just there you know, to be an obstacle to whatever amazing goals they want to achieve. And, and that may be true in a lot of fields, uh, including, for instance, the digital field, where essentially states uh, have no way to control much of what's happening. And space is not like that. And at least it is not yet like that. Let's hope it will never be. Uh, because corporations understand two things. First, that space is very sensitive. It's so strategic that countries do not want private corporations to stay uh, in between uh, the very important political objectives that they have when they regulate out of space. And so there is something that is even higher than profit, and that is national interest. And those will not allow any company, any crazy billionaire to stay in the way and to screw it up. That's one. Second one is that space is expensive and very technologically complicated. Both the two things are so far in the domain of states activities rather than private activities. To engage in a space activity, you need a lot of investments. You need a lot of, I mean, this is true to a certain extent. Now it's getting cheaper and cheaper. I also don't want to give you an impression that it's more the one in the 70s. In the 70s, it was like exclusively states. Today, this is changing, depending also on the activity you want to do. But still, it's a very complex and, and, and expensive environment where uh, let's say the, the buy-in from states, the regulation is is, is critically important. You, I mean, a company like SpaceX, right, just to reveal the one that I wrote about, uh, would not be here if it wasn't for the United States government. And the simple answer is that even though they're doing business in a different way, and I think SpaceX is a great example because they are, in fact, much better than other space companies, which are too traditional to a certain extent. They really do space, they really treat space as a product, as a commercial activity, but they would not be there if the United States government had not invested billions of dollars into their activities. If they didn't have governmental funds and governmental programs subsidizing whatever they were doing, uh, even though technically it was not a subsidy, but SpaceX. Uh, was um, started to thrive with governmental contracts or public money because the customer is also the one that pays the more is the government. And so they understand that they have to play with them. They have to abide by the rules because otherwise there would be, there would be no market for them and, and there would be no convenience in trying to go outside the rules because they understand that it's much easier for them to thrive within the rules uh, rather than go, um, go against them. Now, then, of course, you still have you know, people like Elon Musk who think they can write whatever they want on Twitter and, and they actually... That's not only him. <laughs> right, yeah. So. Sadly, I can tell you this, it's not only him, it is true. These people, including him, have an army of other individuals supporting them in a, in a way that looks like blind faith, honestly. So sometimes they go even beyond Twitter and they put it in legal documents. This is what happened with um, SpaceX, who wrote in the terms and conditions of their own satellite constellation, the Starlink constellation, that for service provided on, on Mars, they would not accept the jurisdiction of the United States of America or the, um, or the competence of the courts of, of California, uh, because they think space, uh, say, sorry, they think Mars is a free planet and that any rule would be developed in good faith by <laughs> the parties on Mars. Now, that, that is a clear violation of international space law. There's not even a question uh, about it. Um, it is there, and nobody cares in, in legal terms because they're they not providing a service to Mars. So it's just there hypothetically in legal 
legal issues cannot be brought on a hypothetical basis. You need to have a concrete interest. At the same time, it is important that we say that this is not fine, that you know they cannot go to that level and say, no, we think Mars is a free planet because you have no right to say that. So I wrote an article about it, and I can tell you that on Twitter and on the webpage of Space News, uh, which published the article, I got smashed by, uh, I don't know how many thousands of people who accuse me of staying in the middle of progress, of hating Elon Musk and freedom, of being paid by the Luxembourgish government to destroy freedom in outer space and, and, and crazy things like that. So it is quite dangerous, but thankfully, if we speak up against them, we can keep the rule of law as it is. We have to say that the Outer Space Treaty is is about any celestial body, right? There is no difference between Moon or Mars or wherever we hopefully uh, fly at certain no. moment. Yeah, the scope of the OST is universal. It applies to everything that can be considered as outer space. And, and then there is no actual difference among celestial bodies. This will actually be... Uh, probably one of the most uh, pressing issues that we will need to sort maybe 20 years in the future. Uh, because imagine that under the definition of celestial body, you have a planet like Mars, you have a moon like the moon, but also you have an asteroid. Any rock that is in outer space is a celestial body, according to the Outer Space Treaty. And, and that could be an issue because, of course, it doesn't make a lot of sense to apply the same rules to a giant planet and then to a piece of rock that is maybe not even bigger than my phone. But legally, they are under the same definition. That will be something that we will need to decide at some point. What is the threshold to be considered a celestial body? And what do we do with anything which is below the threshold? Are they subtract to any kind of rule? Do we develop a new treaty for the small objects? It's going to be a very interesting question because if you want to do space mining in asteroids, you can do space mining also in celestial bodies. But if you want to do asteroid mining, well, the fact that you will exhaust the resources of an asteroid until the point that it doesn't exist anymore, it would be a violation of international space law because you would be appropriating the asteroid, right? One thing is to go to the moon, take some ice, and, and then the moon is still there. But if you go to a, a piece of rock and you exhaust it, then you appropriated it, and so you violated the international law. At the same time, do we really want to be that strict? There are billions of small objects that, uh, honestly, nobody really cares for. And so do we need to apply the same rules? Of course, at the time, this was very futuristic, so they didn't even think about it. And even to this day, this is a very futuristic issue. But this is one of the things that we will need to, for sure, revise from the Aerospace Treaty. Of course, that's, that's also something to think of. But as you said, uh, that's future. Coming back to present, I mean, future, yeah. probably not distant, but still uh, there's a bit more uh, closer, let's say, subjects. And of course, yeah. one of the ones that we keep discussing is sustainability and climate change and all that. And yeah. as we can see on Earth, we are not really managing to do what probably is needed. Uh, what about space? What's the story here? Because you mentioned waste management and you mentioned a sustainable development of space. And as far as I understand, the Outer Space Treaty is not very, very detailed on that, is it? It is not. Unfortunately, this is one of the flaws of, of the Outer Space Treaty in the sense that it, it, didn't ha it doesn't even have the word environment into it <laughs> because there was a strong opposition. Imagine those were the 50s, right, when, when it was negotiated. So there was really no, no consensus in having a word like environment and environmental rules in the Outer Space Treaty. There are, though, some general principles that apply also to environmental sustainability and also through the visionary um, provision of Article 3 of the treaty, which says that international law is applicable in space, we can have a sort of 
analogical application of environmental rules that we have developed over the last 50 years on Earth. Having said that, uh, especially at the beginning, because countries were ignoring the consequences of their actions in space, there was no idea of what does it mean to be environmentally sustainable uh, in outer space. That led to a lot of problems, honestly, which we are facing to this day. So the orbit of Earth, and especially the lowest part of the orbit, uh, the part that goes between, say, 300 kilometers to I think it's about uh, 1,000. It is very crowded. It is so crowded that we now have a potential risk of a cascade of collisions that will prevent the use of low Earth orbit for everyone. And that will have catastrophic effects on humanity, honestly. The way we live is so dependent on satellite communication that if something like that would happen, we we would not be having this, this interview today because there will be no satellite communication allowed for it, right? You will have no cell phone reception and, and so many other things. We know Netflix, whatever, you know, going through very, very stupid things, to critical things like national security uh, concerns. Now, that's an issue because, uh, as I said, at the beginning, countries were just launching objects and nobody thought that we could fill it up, you know. Space is so vast that people are going, oh, maybe it's going to be fine. Uh, it wasn't, and it is not. So now, since the early 2000s, we have developed a set of guidelines at the international level, which are the UN debris mitigation guidelines, that are there to prevent that more debris are created. But imagine that to this day, we have millions of small pieces, smaller than one centimeter, floating in other space, and they are completely uncontrollable. We have to avoid them every time we go into space. We have to design trajectories that do not, you know, crash and, and collide with these objects. And, and that's why a behavior like the one that I described before, anti-satellite test, that creates more debris is becoming so irresponsible up to the point of being a violation of international space law. Because back then, there was no no understanding and there was also no pressing issue of debris. But today, it's just a completely different story, Right. So unfortunately, we have repeated some of the mistakes we have on Earth when it comes to orbital environment. When it comes to exploration of celestial bodies, we can do better <laughs> uh, because so far we haven't made any particular damage in any celestial body. And now we are much more conscious of what does it mean to explore in a sustainable way. So in orbit, it will take some time in order to revert the situation, right? It's like climate change. The damage is already there. Before we can get rid of these millions of pieces, it will take a lot of time and a lot of money. And right now, that's why nobody's doing it, right? Uh, but we will get there, and I'm pretty sure, as we have to, because it's too space is too important to leave it to the to to chances, right? We we will do something about it, but it it takes time, and few people want to take the first step. Uh, this is one of the things that make me proud of being European, in the sense that the European Space Agency has been the very first entity financing the removal, the active removal of a piece of debris uh, to demonstrate that this could be done, that this is fine, that this is legal, and that this could be done in a certain you know, range of cost and to support the development of a market for this kind of applications. And so that is, that, that is only takes, you know, it takes a few steps and then it, it, can, it can develop further. We're trying now to be much more mindful of the concept of sustainability in space and then also how space can help the sustainable development of Earth. So one of the activities that I do with Space Generation Ambassador Council, um, which probably we can talk about it more later, which is this organization that represents uh, the young people of the United Nations, is to create uh, new policies on behalf of the young generation. And I can tell you that this year we're going to focus on what space could and should do for climate action. 
You know, what are our capabilities? What is that we can offer to the fight against climate change? And then if we can do it, that we have to do it. And how do we do it? So space is not only trying to be more sustainable itself. It's also trying to understand how and, and, and what we can do to make life more sustainable on Earth. And once again, we talked about the country approach and then commercial sustainability, yeah. corporations. Uh, that doesn't go together, does it? It doesn't and it does. I can tell you that, for instance, there is a company in the United Kingdom called um, Astroscale, and their exact purpose is to make space more sustainable. Their own business model is based about that. They want to do, you know, they want to promote sustainable practices. At some point, they want to do active debris removal. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think it's written in stone that a company or a corporation needs to be evil and doesn't care for the rules. <laughs> We're used to this in many fields, but space is different. And so I think that there are the right incentives for companies to be much more sustainable in space than they would be in any other environment. And we see that because those who have made the most damage are not companies, honestly. They are their countries, and they still are to this day. So even though Elon Musk could say a lot of crazy things, SpaceX would not even dream to do the same damage that the United States has done to the orbit of space. Imagine that in the 60s, uh, they performed an experiment called the Westford Experiment. You can find it online, which involved launching millions of copper needles in orbit as a sort of barrier to protect them from I don't really know what. And they did it without telling anyone. And they discovered it, the, the international community, all of the sudden astronomers were looking at the sky and so found copper needles. And they said, what, what is happening here? And, and they said, oh, we, we tested, we, we want to see how it goes. That was actually the basis for the development of Article 9 of the Aerospace Treaty, because the Soviet Union at the time rightfully denounced this behavior before the UN. And they said, these guys are doing crazy stuff here and, and we have to stop it. Next time, we don't want this to happen again. They didn't think about what interference they would create. So there is no way a corporation could do that level of damage, also because they are much more under scrutiny. I'll give you one example. SpaceX is launching the Starline constellation, right? Which is supposed yes. to be, I, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of satellites, right? 40,000 or something like that. But if the United States government would say, no, you cannot launch them, then there is no way they will launch them. They will say, okay, how many can we launch? 20,000, we'll launch 20,000. If you say 10,000, they'll negotiate. But it's only because they're allowed to do it by their government that they are doing it. And when they deploy the satellites, they try to be better. So right now, there are 40 Starlink satellites which are currently deorbiting Earth because after a, a geo magnet storm, I think, there was, a, there was a, an issue anyways in, in a certain part of the orbit, they became non-functional. And so they are programmed, once they're non-functional, to deorbit and burn upon re-entry because they are small enough to do that. So this would never happen 30 years ago. It was not even the minds of, of a government to, to include a system for making sure that then the satellite, if there is a geomagnet, there is not even in their minds. Companies, now they do it because they understand it's much better if they do like that rather than facing the consequences of these satellites crashing on Earth or you know, creating any damage. Because at the end of the day, they want to do business, and business flourishes without any legal troubles. And they would be in a lot of trouble if these things would blow up against other objects. You mentioned the needles, so it got me thinking about another kind of uh, legal 
how to say a riddle maybe or not, or we'll see how, how you approach this, is the registration of objects. So if you launch something into space, you have to register that, and there is a register country, national, I guess, registers in different places. But then I, as far as I understood, for objects already placed somewhere, like on the moon, there isn't anything yet is to be developed. How does it work? So it's a very interesting question and one that has many layers of it. So under the Outer Space Treaty, in order to retain jurisdiction and control over an object launched into outer space, countries have to register it in a national registry, as you already said. Then building from that premise, uh, countries started to understand that there is value in registering this information also at the international level. So there was a resolution at the time approved by the General Assembly of the Nation that said, Countries should register objects not only in a national registry, but also with the United Nations. Then, about 20 years later, uh, there was the idea of creating a treaty which would create a legal obligation to register all objects launched into other space. And that is the Registration Convention. The Registration Convention is a successful treaty to a certain extent, not as successful as the Outer Space Treaty, which enjoys universal recognition. But still, the majority of countries engaging in space activities, they are also party to the Registration Convention. Now, under that convention, any country launching any object in space has to register it. The point is that the <laughs> Registration Convention says that you have to do so as soon as practical. It doesn't give you a deadline. You don't have to do it the day after or one week after, not even one year later. You have to do it whenever a state finds it more convenient which is a problem in the sense that we have a lot of objects which are registered, but we have much many more that are not registered because countries say, oh, we're working on it. You know, it's not practical right now. Sorry, come later. And, and that's, that's one issue. Then whatever goes to the moon is actually under the scope of the registration convention because as soon as it departs from Earth and gets into other space, then it is under the obligation to be registered. The problem is that the register um, developed under the registration convention at the United Nations level was primarily made having orbital activities in mind. So if you look at the information you have to provide when you register an object, there is the function, which is actually very important because there are a lot of satellites which are military satellites. And so by declaring the function, you are automatically saying that this is not a military satellite. Second, you have to register certain orbital information, the perigee, the apogee, the orbital inclination, the nodal period. All this information are useless for an object which is on the surface of the moon. There is no apogee, there is no perigee, there is no nodal inclination, there is nothing. But we want to know maybe where the object is on the surface. We want to know where it's going to go, how long it's going to stay. None of this information is required under the registration convention. And this is one of the reasons why, with some international colleagues, we're working on the development of enhanced practices to fill these gaps that we have under the registration convention and share information specifically designed for objects on the lunar surface or the Martian surface. But, I mean, we do, not, we do not really have a concern about what's happening on Mars because it's so big, and second, because there are not many objects. But the moon, it's another story. We need this information for many reasons. We need it for transparency because the moon shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. It's very different than orbit. In orbit, you can have military activities, but in on the moon and celestial bodies, that's absolutely forbidden. So we need to know what every single object does on the moon, because we need to make sure that they are peaceful. Second, coordination. There's going to be a lot of potential cases for interferences on the moon, because it's a very small body. Imagine that whenever you take off from the moon, the whole surface shakes. No matter where you are, there is a, uh, some vibration. And then there is dust ejection. And so 
In order to avoid that these things will create troubles to others, you need to coordinate. But if you do not know where the, where the others are, how long are they going to stay, what is the object that they have on the surface, and things like that, you cannot coordinate. And if you cannot coordinate, then there's going to be no environment for everyone because there will be just a lot of interferences and then everyone will stop doing everything. So that's what you need to do. You need to share information. And that's one critical area for development over the next five years, I would say, in international space law. And that also kind of uh, fits into the discussion of benefit sharing as such. So the whole idea of cooperation, right? Yes. I was about to say that the third purpose why you want to share information is to enable cooperation. And, and that is, uh, has to be understood in, 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 in a way that there are many, many different options for cooperation and for benefit sharing, right? Uh, I mean, think about one thing, that the GPS program, which provides you know, um, positioning services to every human on the planet, essentially, that has a phone that can connect to the GPS system, is provided by the United States government for free and started as a military application. The GPS constellation of satellites was meant for military purposes. Then at some point, it was not it was not useful only for that. They realized that there was civilian application and you never had to pay the United States government for that. But it's a critical service. You know, if I if I'm able to reach a restaurant tonight, it's because of that. Uh, and the European Union is working on another service, Galileo, which is fully operational in Europe. And China is another one, Beidou, and none of this is on charge. It's free, available for everyone. All the scientific information that we get from the exploration of other space that NASA does, you know, countless of fundamental information on how the universe has originated uh, and, and things that could be useful also for medicine on Earth, they're not, you don't pay NASA for them. Everything that NASA actually does is, by law, available for free. And so that's one way to share benefits. Then... Of course, there are other ways which could be, in principle, possible, but very impractical. So there are a lot of people claiming that if you do space mining and you earn a profit from the resources that you mine, you should share the actual revenues, which would be a little bit too much, I think, in my view, because it's not that we go to a telecommunication company and tell them, hey, you make billions of dollars per year, you know, you have to share the benefits, give us a fair share of it. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. It is more about enabling opportunities for others. That's what space is meant for. That's what we can do as well on the moon. So if you share information about the development of an infrastructure for landing on the moon, then maybe others can do the same, can use the same technology, can use your own platform if it's available for use. And so that will already enable countries which maybe cannot afford to research on how to develop these technologies or to, de- or to pay for their development to save those costs and focus on what they can do best. And the Artemis program is an example of that. It's an international cooperation that essentially any country can join where NASA and other big players provide the fundamental infrastructure and then other countries build upon it. And they don't have to pay for the infrastructure themselves. They don't have to build it again. They just go and make use of whatever is already there. And that's a great way to share the benefits. You know, I think it would even be fair if you would demand to share a portion of the cost. It's not about making a profit about sharing the cost but they're not even doing that they said hey we have a landing infrastructure you want to land come over and then do your science that's a great way to share benefits but again to do it i need to know what you want to do and need to know and you need to know what i have done so far so that's why information sharing is so critical as a way also to share the benefits of space activities for sure 
So this is also part of the report I read from the Eagle team that you lead, right? So you mentioned already the Space Generation Advisory Council, and, and you lead this, this Eagle team, which is the Effective and Adaptive Governance for a Lunar Ecosystem. Okay, Eagle is way, yeah. way easier to say than that. <laughs> That's why um, we developed the acronym. <laughs> yeah, but it's very good you've done that. Yes, acronyms are not always great, but in this case, that's uh, that really helps. So I will definitely leave a link to the to this report because I, I think it's very interesting. There are a lot of points uh, of discussion. We could continue here for another two hours at least, but we focused on, on some of the things that you pinpoint as as a way forward, let's say. And also, I know you talked there about the special charter that, that you would like to, to, to introduce, to discuss mm-hmm. uh, with the international community. So the, the, the charter is called the Lunar Governance Charter. Can you, can you say something more about that? Yeah, of course. And thanks very much for taking the time to read the Eagle Report. Uh, it is one of the, um, the documents I am the most proud of in the, my entire career as space lawyer. And I'd like to say Not hi the <laughs> PhD has to be finished yet. So that would be probably my proudest one, but I have to finish it over the next couple of months. So, so far, this honor goes to the Eagle Report. And I wanted to say actually hi to all the Eagles that may be listening. You know, Eagle was a team, and it still is a team of 14 people from the SGC, Space Generation Advisory Council. And, and we, we got people from all over the world, from all over the fields. There were lawyers like me, but also engineers, scientists. Uh, we got, you know, people from the business side, entrepreneurs as well. And, and that amazing group of people, we worked together for one year with one question in mind, you know, what should be the position of the young generation on the utilization of the moon? What do we want to see in the governance in order to have sustainable, peaceful and prosperous uses of the moon? So how we came up with the Eagle Report is a story of, First of all, what is already happening there? And so if you see that in the in the Eagle report, there is first part, which is about what is the landscape for lunar activities? What are the others doing already? You know, because sometimes young people, we tend to just go ahead and, and say things that have been said already or things that are completely in opposition with what has been done. And so one of the things we, we thought it was important was to align or at least being aware of what was happening and then maybe criticize it, of course, but then at least know. So we did three months of interviews. We interviewed people from NASA, the European Space Agency, from companies, governments, you name them, really. We tried to be as inclusive as possible. And we asked them, you know, what do you want to see in lunar governance? What do you want to do with the moon? And how is this promoting the sustainable development of the moon? Then once we had all that information in mind, we said, okay, do we agree with this? What Do we think it's fine? Do we think we need to improve? And, and how? And what are the gaps? And as a young generation, where do we want to focus? And after a thorough analysis, the, the whole process lasted for one year, uh, we came up with the suggestion of a lunar governance charter, which is uh, a document that is meant to be, as I said before, an intermediate framework in between the Outer Space Treaty, which is binding international space law, and national legislation, or even national policies, which is developed to implement the Outer Space Treaty. The problem is that, is that when we talk about innovative activities like lunar activities, it is not very easy to interpret the Outer Space Treaty, and you could do it in so many different ways. You could interpret the same principle in four, five, six different ways that maybe will conflict with one another. And there is no single authority in international law that can tell you, you know, this is the right interpretation and the others are wrong. There is no court. I mean, there is a court, but nobody wants actually to go there and, and ask these questions. So we have to do something. So that when we come up with these rules and policies at the national level, we come from the same starting point, which is the Outer Space Treaty, 
but needs to be a little bit more detailed than that. And so a lunar governance charter will be in between. Okay, how do we interpret the principle that, you know, there shall be free access to all areas of celestial bodies? What does it mean in practice? That you can just go and run over any operation happening on the moon simply because you can? What are the boundaries of that? Can you, can you exercise some certain degree of control? You know, in practice, what does it mean? And so to answer this question, we cannot have a new treaty because countries are very resistant to make treaties because then it becomes binding. As I said before, there is no expiration date, lasts forever. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe, maybe we come up with ideas which when we test them, they are not very, very logical. And so we need something that is very authoritative because we need countries to follow, to have a consistent approach, but also not legally binding. And so we came up with the idea of a charter, which has never been used in outer space law, at least. But in the past, the idea of a charter reminds of documents which have a solemn value, most of the times legally binding, but not always legally binding. And so when negotiating a charter, we would all be reminded of the solemnity of what we were doing, but we will also be completely bound by it in the, in the legal sense of the way. And so we thought that this could be a contribution from us in developing a new narrative. You know, forget about a treaty, forget about its binding or not. Just let's discuss about what do we want to do on the moon and how do we want to regulate in a general level, okay, not as general as the Outer Space Treaty, but a little bit more specific. So that whenever when we come with specific rules, like how many kilometers can you mine on the moon, we do it starting from the principle that there should be a limit, that there should be a size limit, right? Right now, we don't even have that. We do not know if a country can have an unlimited permit. We think so. But there is, it's not written anywhere, I can tell you that. So a charter would be a place where we write these kind of things. We write, hey, you want to go to the moon? Fair enough. But you cannot stay there forever. And you cannot take the entire South Pole of the moon. There is to be a limit. Then how big and how long will be decided in practice by countries based upon a licensing process, based upon our learning of what can you do on the moon. But the fact that there has to be a limitation is in the charter. And that will already be a great starting point because it will avoid an issue where a country would have a limit and another country would say, no, we don't think there should be a limit because, no, it's not written in the outer space, really. We interpret it in a way that it doesn't impose us to put any limitation on companies. It, it, that's an actual issue that could happen. And then in that case, what do you do? You know, you, you have tensions, you have conflict, and we want to avoid that by being proactive. So that's why we came up with the idea of a charter. Now, of course, developing such documents take a long time in international law, but even just putting it on the table, I can tell you, fostered a whole different discussion. You know, the fact that the young generation wanted action, that wanted countries to come and agree on the most important principles governing lunar activities, it, it already means something. And it's already triggering a lot of processes that maybe one day will end up in a charter, maybe not. Maybe they will end up in another document called Guidelines for Safe Lunar Operation. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. The important thing is that the process started and that the young generation are playing a role in it participatory role in, in this is great also because we are always well, I also feel I'm the young generation okay so I'll say we always are accused of not participating enough in the decision making process so this is this is always great and it's a good example here I think. It's, a, it's actually very nice that you say that because in fact you know when I started reflecting about this I was also the founder of the Eagle team within LGC you know I realized that it it was not that countries or governments didn't want to listen to the young generation. It was that nobody was talking, that nobody was providing 
the position of the end generation on this issue. And so as long as something would have come up, they would have probably listened. And I can tell you that this was exactly the case. So to a certain extent, in certain processes, there is resistance from the old generation to have the young generation come in. But in other fields, it's just that nobody's doing it, that nobody's speaking. And so by already starting a process for that, then we completely change the way we see it as well, right? And so I think that was a transformative experience for me because I said, okay, nobody's doing it. Let's see how it goes. And, and when we started approaching senior people in government, space agencies, they never said, you guys, what are you talking about? You know, just do whatever you do at 25 years old and don't bother us. You know, this is serious stuff. Uh, we don't have time to waste with you. That never happened. Everyone was like, oh, finally, finally, young generation speaking about it. We want your input. What do you think? That, that was an amazing experience, honestly. So much rewarding. And, and now, of course, then from words to facts, it's a different story. Implementing is always much more difficult. But we already, I think, are halfway through with the fact that we started, that we have been listened, and that we have a document now. And, and then implementation is also a matter of chances to a certain extent. But it's great that we did it. And I think this should serve as an example to all the young people listening. Whenever you think that you should take a stand or something, just, just do it. You know, Don't wait for permission. Sometimes you know, people are just waiting for your initiative. And other young people too. So just reach out to other people and say, hey, let's do something about this. And let's provide the voice of the young generation because we are entitled to do that. And then most of the times, people will listen. And if they don't listen, then you have a reason to fight. This is a brilliant call to action to finish the podcast with. I don't know if you were looking at the clock and decided, okay, this is the time to just appeal to everybody. And but that's perfect. But still, we have to do one more thing. So solve the question you asked before. I don't know whether we will have enough time to discuss it all, but for sure, at least the answer. So let's remind our listeners, first of all, what was the question? And then please tell us about the answer. So the question was, um, what has been the most debated issue in the history of space law? And the answer is uh, that the issue uh, that has been most debated and is still debated um, since the start of international space law is the delimitation of other space. <laughs> so the, the, the crazy part about international space law is that we do have laws for activities happening in other space, but there is no agreement on where outer space starts. <laughs> there is no line that you cross and you, and you know that you are for sure in outer space. There are people who claim that, don't believe them. There is nothing like that. Certain countries, they decided for national purposes to put a line, which is usually what we call the Karman line at about 100 kilometers. But that, that has no international recognition whatsoever. You have to imagine that since the creation of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in 1958, every year, and I can tell you every year, that committee has been meeting to discuss where do we put the line between outer space and airspace. Every single year, there is a working group specifically discussing this, and every year they reconvene, and they are at the same starting point that they were in 1958, because the theory has not changed. There is the spatialist approach, which says that we should have a line you know, let's put 100 kilometers, everything happening above is space, everything below, airspace. And then there is another approach, which is called the functionalist. And they say, no, a line is stupid uh, because, you know, line can change based on technology. Uh, the, the main reason why people wanted to put a line is that an aircraft cannot survive in space because it needs atmospheric pressure, right? 
So wherever, whenever an aircraft doesn't work anymore, that, that space, and that happens to be at about 100 kilometers, but that's, that's not a great way to do it, honestly. And I agree with this approach because technology will change. And, and sometimes it doesn't really make sense where exactly you are, but what do you want to do? And so that's what the functionist approach says. You know, if you want to do an activity that, uh, let's say, leverages outer space, and the clear understanding that we all have outer space, which is the orbit, right, and the environment in orbit, then that's a space activity. So uh, whether you decide for one or the other has a lot of political implications as well, and so far we haven't managed. The point is that, thankfully, the majority of activities happen so high that we're all sure that it's space. You know, when you have the... International Space Station at about 400 kilometers, nobody will say this is airspace. That's why we have been able to live with this ongoing debate forever and never actually closed it because it's more, sometimes it's considered to be an academic question. You know, in practice, uh, we have been doing great so far and we will do it in the future. At the same time, there is one activity that may challenge this this very approach, let's say, which is suborbital flights. And not the type of suborbital flights that Virgin Galactic is doing so far, with all due respect to Virgin, of course, which is just go to space, stay one minute and come back, you know, because, I mean, that's not very relevant, to be honest. It's amazing. I would love to do it. But uh, the point is what SpaceX wants to do, and Virgin claims that they can do as much more doubt about them, which is point-to-point transportation on Earth through orbit or through suborbital activities. Now, in that case, you're doing a typical aviation activity, which is transporting people through air, because you will certainly cross the airspace, that's no doubt, and you will be transporting people. Now, how do we regulate that? It's a critical question, because right now in space law, uh, there are certain rules which are not exactly ideal for protection of passengers, right? Whereas in air law, there is a convention, the Montreal Convention, which gives a lot of rights to people. You know, if you die in a plane accident, you will be compensated by the airline under a regime of absolute liability. There's going to be a, a certain process designed for that. You are sure that something will come up out of it. Uh, if you die in outer space on a suborbital activity, we don't even know which rule we have to apply. And at some point, when this will become an actual commercial activity, when you will have people flying from Tokyo to New York in three hours, which is coming, let me tell you that, this is one of the things that will come over the next decade, this one actually, before 2030, then we need to know what are the rules applicable for that. What kind of contract do you sign? And that goes into, is it space or law, or is it aviation law? You know, the specialist approach in this case doesn't make a lot of sense, because let's say that your accident happens at 99 kilometers and you apply aviation law if it happens at 101 you apply space law that's not very reassuring right you want to have a regime that it's it's the same for the entire flight no it's not that if you uh, if you fly at the beginning uh, you have a certain rule and then when you land you have another one it's an international certainty that it's needed so the functionist approach would would make more sense but then how do we choose between air law and space law it's a it's an important question and things that we'll need to discuss uh, for sure. So hopefully, maybe in the next 10 years, the question will be resolved. Uh, otherwise, we will have to go around it and, and find other ways to comply. <laughs> but whenever you hear again about suborbital flights, think about this. And you know, you can always point out that there is no official answer to this day, that it should be one. Um, and hopefully, that will be that whenever we do this kind of things, we follow probably an hybrid regime that will draw some things from space law, but the majority from aviation law, because we want to protect people and human lives. That should be always the absolute priority.
And also there will be the practical side of things, because I guess your field of law is the only law that is, doesn't have a clear definition of where it is applicable and where it is not, right? <laughs> yes, it's one of the unique things of space law. And it's amazing that we've been able to survive over the last 60 years without having that. Imagine what we can do once we have it. <laughs> True. Sky is the limit, as we have to but say. It. It's a more. cliche here, but <laughs> it's rather more. Exactly. Okay. Thank you very much for today. Um, this was very enjoyable, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did, as usual. And uh, yes, uh, I hope to see you in two, three years. You'll tell us for sure about your PhD, but maybe also about you know, different things, the delimination, <laughs> who knows, maybe they've or they would have already decided by then. And if not, there'll be definitely other things, uh, maybe the charter to present. That would Let's be, awesome. be ambitious. Let's be ambitious. Right? Maybe I'll present it from the moon. <laughs> who knows? You gotta be, you gotta Why dream not? big, you know. Yes, always, so always. Thank you very much. Uh, our guest today was uh, Antonino Salmeri. Thanks, Anna. It was really a pleasure. This is it for today. Thank you for listening. And as usual, don't forget to subscribe, to follow, to write us, comment, share your thoughts, feelings, suggestions, who should we talk to, who we shouldn't talk to. And tell us all about the scientific environment and scientists and researchers here in Luxembourg. We are always happy to hear your comments. This was Silax, and my name is Hanna Szymaszko. 